a lawyer's refusal to measure success beyond LSAT scores, billable hours, or profits per partner is part of a larger phenomena plaguing the profession. And that phenomenon is the desire, I guess, to achieve what seems like certainty with the false comfort of a number. My guest will tell us why living and working in an industry obsessed with short-term metrics has led to a glut of unemployed lawyers and what we can do about it after this. This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. I'm ABA Journal reporter Rachel Zahorsky, and I'm joined by Stephen Harper, author of The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis. Stephen's now a professor at Northwestern University and authors numerous articles on the legal profession following his retirement from a 30-year stint as a litigator at Kirkland and Ellis. Stephen, what impact has an almost blind adherence to short-term gains had on the legal profession? The difficulty is that, it, at least in the legal profession, it has driven decision makers into a world where they are valuing, I believe, short-term metrics that don't capture uh, all of the relevant values that make the legal profession what it is, which is, I, I still believe, a special place, a special profession, and a special kind of calling. And uh, it's not unique, as I say, to, to the legal profession, but it's particularly insidious because we're supposed to be better than that. Uh, we're, we're not. We're not supposed to be. You know, we weren't the people that went to business schools. You, we, we did. We went to law schools. Most of us went to law schools because there was something different, something special about being a lawyer that we wanted to be part of. And which isn't to say that there isn't a place for measurement. There's there's nothing wrong with measuring things. But when you decide with a very myopic focus that you're going to focus that you're going to obsess over short-term results, you wind up sacrificing long-term values. And what values have been sacrificed? Uh, I'll give you an example. If you take the prevailing, the, the currently prevailing model in most big law firms, the emphasis is on uh, short-term results, in particular uh, either growth, uh, gross revenues. Some firms think the thing to do is to be the biggest. Uh, other firms are focused on re- average partner profits. The problem is to get to those results requires, in the case of average partner profits, for example, that you focus on Uh, this year's billable hours, this year's hourly rates, uh, this year's leverage ratios. It requires that in order to maximize short-term profits and your AM law ranking, if that's what you're after, you're going to perhaps put undue weight, I think undue weight, on those kinds of numbers. What doesn't get measured? Well, tell me how you include in that kind of a model, which is a a metrics-driven model, the value of a great mentor. Where does that fit in? How do I decide that institutional stability itself is a value? Uh, How do I decide and how do I measure the value to a firm of institutionalizing client relationships in a world where every partner has to worry at the end of the year about whether some other partner will try to share in his billings? So it creates a kind of instability in these places, and at the same time, I think it becomes a morale killer. I mean, it's no accident, I think, that that associate morale, according to recent surveys, have have continued to plummet in big firms. And I think it's all wrapped up in part of the same phenomenon. What are the specific attitudes that need to be identified, the characteristics that need to be identified, the actions that need to be changed in order to kind of repair some of the damage that's been done to the profession? Uh, well, there are different slices, that you, the different steps you could take depending on the different slices of the profession you're looking at. So, for example, if I wanted to focus on law schools, 
one place I would start is the way incentives structures are set up for deans and for universities. Right now, the university's incentive structure is to maximize enrollments so that they can maximize tuition revenues from students. I think the world could be a much different place, that is, that world would be a much different place if in, instead of never having to worry about a student who couldn't get a job after graduation, a law school faced an actual risk of a financial exposure if a student declared bankruptcy, which they can't do now, uh, to get off from under their educational loans. And I think if, if instead of having the federal government backstop all this, uh, the federal government had an ab ability to come back and try to recover from universities and law schools in situations where students had declared bankruptcy because they couldn't get jobs, I think it would be a one way, for example, that you could change the incentive structures. I mean, one of the things I should mention is that you know I'm not I, I'm not against the idea of measurements. I'm not against the idea of metrics. Um, I have an advanced degree in economics, so I'm not an anarchist. Um, but it, the problem is when you develop a, a myopia uh, for a, a, a numerical solution, you really do run the risk of of, uh, of jettisoning other really important values. Another group that you also focus on in your in your book are practicing lawyers and leaders of law firms, and you make the comment that they, if their associates were the same people who were sitting with them at Thanksgiving dinner, they'd probably teach, they'd probably speak to them a little differently, work with them, mentor them, they they treat them differently. How do you get lawyers? partners, senior management to treat associates like their own children, and why should they care? Really good question. The answer is it may be an impossible task. It may be that my generation among the baby boomers is sufficiently incorrigible that you're really never going to make significant inroads in, in that kind of an effort. On the other hand, if you get enough shocks to the system in the form of, for example, failures like Dewey and LaBeouf, or Howery before that, or, or Thalen before that, or Heller Ehrman before that, or Finley Cummell before that, uh, law firm managers might think about things a little bit differently. Um, for example, I, th I, I think that mostly what big firm leaders do after the failure of a big law firm is think around, is sit around and conclude with the, with the talent that we always have of distinguishing adverse precedent, uh, of saying, well, we're not like Dewey, and here's why. And so then they satisfy them with the comfort that because they're not like Dewey, they don't have to think about it anymore. Rather than the right exercise, which is rather than focused on the things that make you different from a firm that a prominent firm or any number of prominent firms, every year there's a new one. There'll be another one before this year's over, I'm sure. Rather than think about all the ways that you're different from whatever the most recent failure was, Think about what it is that might make you similar. Think about what might make you vulnerable. Because what ultimately all a law firm is is a collection of its people uh, combined with whatever value comes from its brand. And once you can't continue to attract the best and the brightest from the next generation of lawyers, uh, you're done as a service business. And, and I think if you recognize, if, if law firm leaders recognized or were somehow able to say, you know, I have a stake in this thing that goes beyond my time here, uh, which was the way I always thought about, uh, or, or at least the way my mentors always told me to think about the practice of law in a big firm, I think it would change a lot in the way that people thought about it. The problem is you get this revolution of rising expectations, and once you have uh, you know, managing partners that really, who really think they're worth the gigantic seven-figure sums that show up on their K-1s every year, um, it, becomes, it becomes hard, as I think Richard Susskind wrote in, in, a, in his recent book, 
it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that their business model is is uh, failing. <laughs> Uh, but it, it, it's it's a very tenuous model. It's it's a very fragile model, and I, I think law firm failures may continue to bring that to light. The other thing that will that will have an impact is whether or not they're going to be able, in the culture that the firms create, continue to attract the best and the brightest from the next generation of lawyers. And I think, from my undergraduate teaching, I think that generation is is looking very very seriously uh, at some of the things that we have done and thinks that there has to be a better way to do it. And so they're going to vote with their feet. Now that generation, the millennials, sometimes get a bad rap. You teach this yep. undergraduate class. Yep. What do you see from these students? How would you define this generation? And do you think that they are capable of making the changes necessary to move the profession forward in a sustainable way? Um, it's, it's always tricky to extrapolate from a limited sample, but I will tell you that I think in general, the, the generation that you're referring to, the younger generation, uh, gets a very bum rap. Um, I think a lot of it is revisionist thinking on behalf of my generation of baby boomers who likes to think of themselves as actually special. I think it's also an excuse, frankly, to, um, to treat people not as well and justify the way you're treated because you're just that much better than these younger people who don't want something or don't want something enough to go out and work hard to get it. And I think, by and large, it's it's a bunch of baloney. Um, I can find plenty of, uh, of people who didn't carry their weight in my generation, and I'm sure there are plenty of, of people who who are slackers in in every uh, generation. But I think to give an entire generation of of students that rap is is a bum rap, um, and I think they'll prove that over time. And and I don't have any any antidote for it, other than for them to just take heart in the fact that eventually they'll. They will be in positions to to run these shows, uh, but it's a it's a I think it's an it's a, it's I think it's generally unfair. And to lawyers who recently graduated, you talk a lot about in the book, the future generation. You talk about the now, the leaders now. To those in the middle, those who've graduated in the last two to three years, the the lost generation, those stuck in the glut, those who were income partners and thought they would never have to worry, who are suddenly find themselves laid off, or those who once they get the brass ring of partner, realize this isn't what I had been sold. Um, what message does your book have for them? I guess, I guess the message there is, is, uh, is hang in there. Um, you, you know, it may be that you've, that you've, and this happens to a lot of people, you know, you can get to a certain point in your life where you've, you've pursued a, a particular path, it hasn't worked out, and, but nevertheless you feel in some sense committed to it, so you're going to kind of stick with it. But if you come to the decision that it's a mistake, don't stay on that, that path. I, I, I think there'll be, Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, referred to a process called creative destruction. And I think the law firm is going through a period of, of creative destruction that's going to lead to lots of new opportunities, lots of new models of, of practice, lots of new business models. Um, and I think that as difficult as things may seem now for a lot of the people that you described, uh, I, I, I retain ultimate optimism for their future, even as bleak as it may as it may sometimes seem to them. But when you're in the middle of that swirl, it's very hard to see much positive. I, I totally get that. But with a little time, it, it may it, it may the things are going to happen that are going to create opportunities that you couldn't even imagine on the horizon right now. Great, thank you so much for joining us. Before we end today's podcast session, there's a passage from your book that you've selected to share with our readers. Would you like to go ahead and do that? Oh, sure. Uh, since I've just since I've just given you a nice <laughs> note of optimism, let me take you back into the into the into the cellar. 
Scandals occasionally bring the profession's darker side to the fore. A law school gets caught cheating on LSAT scores that it submits to the ABA and U.S. News and World Report. A newspaper article describes an unemployed attorney hobbled with six-figure debt and no prospects of ever repaying it. Someone exposes a law firm that exaggerated revenue and profits to help its AMLAW ranking. A respected law firm spirals to a spectacular death. A seemingly successful attorney in a big firm commits suicide. Such episodes get headlines for a while, but the underlying culture that produces them survives and thrives. The pages that follow expose the evolution of that culture, from law schools to the pinnacle of the profession at America's most prestigious law firms. Unrestrained self-interest, let's call it greed, has taken key legal institutions to an unfortunate place. As leaders of the bar, especially law school deans and many managing partners of the nation's biggest law firms, focus on the near future, disastrous long-term consequences are becoming apparent. But there is hope. Those who attribute the current state of the legal profession to market forces beyond anyone's control are wrong. Human decisions created this mess. Better human decisions can clean it up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Your Chris. book comes out May 1st. April. It's April. actually it's available now. It, a publication date was officially April 2nd, but I think they have it available for anybody who wants it. Wonderful. I'm really happy that we were able to have you here today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rachel. I enjoyed it. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.